0: Hello again. Uh, Greetings to you this morning. Welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church. My name is John. If you are uh, newer uh, here at Covenant, may I encourage you to, after the worship service, uh, not uh, dart out, but uh, say hi to folks. And uh, we'd even love to have you stay for Sunday school. There is always a class uh, taught uh, by myself called Essentials that Maybe a good class for you to learn a little bit about uh, our church. Uh, But you'll see all of our Sunday school classes in your worship bulletin. We'd love for you to stay. We are making our way through Mark's gospel. We are in Mark chapter 10 this morning. We'll look at the first 16 verses. Little theologians, I think I've asked you to draw this before, but in this passage, there are children. You'll see that at the very end of the passage. And I'd like for you to draw a picture of a child doing something that you know a child is unable to do. I think I've had you draw a child flying an airplane or driving a car or uh, something that you know a child can't do. Draw a picture of a child doing that very thing. Well, again, we're in Mark uh, chapter 10. Uh, Let me uh, lead us in prayer. Before we read this passage, would you pray with me? Our Father, thank you for making yourself known to us. You are so very patient. We do uh, try to ride out of your hand to uh, walk away from understanding you as you reveal yourself in your word, but you are so very patient. We ask that you would give us understanding by your Holy Spirit as we spend time in your word together this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 1, if you'd look at that with me, please. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them and the disciples rebuke them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is the word of our Lord. Well, I want to suggest to you something this morning. It's a borderline between a suggestion and a warning. How about that? And the suggestion is that if we're not careful with this passage, we'll forget what it's really about. It's always a temptation uh, for us, isn't it, to bring our issues into a passage in our Bible study and to bring our issues so deeply into a passage that we never actually take time to notice what's really there in God's Word sitting right before us. We oftentimes bring meaning into the text rather than sitting before the text, reading carefully, meditating on it. I want you to think about uh, an event where uh, maybe it's a dinner party or a large uh, social gathering in which there are several conversations uh, happening there. You know that sometimes you'll join a conversation late Uh, The conversation has uh, preceded your being a part of the conversation and you'll join that conversation late and you'll hear uh, one word or phrase and you'll you'll dial in on that word or phrase and you'll begin uh, participating because you want to participate. And before you realize it, maybe you'll never realize it, you took a conversation and because you wanted to fit in with the conversation, you actually took it in an entirely different direction. It's a little bit of an analogy towards what we can sometimes do with Scripture. And if we look at this particular passage too quickly, we may think that the entire passage is all about singularly divorce. And to be sure, divorce is mentioned quite a lot in the passage, isn't it? But even though this is the case, that divorce is mentioned a lot, the main point of this passage is actually not divorce The main point of the passage is the hardness of heart that can sometimes lead to divorce. We might say that divorce isn't an ingredient in this passage, but it isn't the main ingredient of this passage. And you see this by asking yourself a question when you sit and look at this passage. And the question might be this, what is it that Jesus was teaching about before the Pharisees arrived on the scene? You see there, don't you, in the first verse... Jesus, as was his custom, was teaching. As Jesus has been making his way from the north uh, to the south, he's uh, passing now uh, into Judea, and he's always getting uh, closer to Jerusalem. And as he's traveling, he's teaching. You know this. We've seen this in the past several verses. Recently, he's been teaching on the subject of the cost of discipleship what it means and what it's going to involve to be a follower of Jesus. That's what Jesus has been teaching about before this passage. So perhaps that's what Jesus is teaching about originally before something happens. You see what happens in the second verse. Jesus, he is interrupted. As he's teaching Pharisees, they come up to him. And whatever Jesus is teaching about, he's interrupted. What is it that you think that the Pharisees heard that they dialed down on, and they began to test Jesus. It may be that they didn't hear Jesus say anything at all. They came uh, explicitly for the purpose to interrupt whatever he's teaching about and to test him. We do know, don't we, that they came with that very purpose in mind. They're there to test him. To test someone is very different than listening, from, listening to someone or learning from someone. And it's certainly very different than worshiping someone or following someone. They're there to test. And in order to test, you have to have the answer in your head. Imagine then what it is that they are doing to our Lord and Savior. They have an answer in their head, and they're asking Jesus a question to see if what? To see if Jesus gets it right. How remarkable this transition is from uh, earlier when Jesus is teaching and his authority is immediately recognized. Not so with these individuals. They come in a position of authority themselves. They're holding the correct answer in their minds and they wanna hear if this Jesus, if he gets it right. Now, here, here we are, just in the introduction of the sermon but let me ask you to wait just a little bit longer and ask yourself if you ever approach God with this same manner. I mean, how easy is it for us, even as Christians, perhaps especially as Christians, to rather than wait on the Lord as he directs the events surrounding our lives, well, to compel God to change the circumstances surrounding our lives. How easy is it then for us to simply trust him when our plans fall completely flat? It's not very easy at all, is it, to wait upon God, to trust his plan for our lives, to love him, uh, not just when everything seems to be going uh, smoothly, but to love him when, well, when we've fallen flat on our faces and, uh, well, the world around us is collapsing as well. Well, it's actually very hard to trust God in both the good and the bad. Do we love him just as much when bad things happen as when good things happen in our lives? Without knowing it, we actually can treat God with enormous disrespect when we love him only when he seems to be answering our wishes. Things are going right. Good for you, God. You got the answer. Well, this passage, you have to understand, it's about our willingness to submit before God. It's about setting aside our own will for God's will. It's about the kind of hard-heartedness that we can have even as those who profess faith in Jesus. That's what this passage is about, submitting our will for God's will. You know, our testing of God is perhaps not as overt as that of the Pharisees here in this passage. They're testing Jesus with a controversy that's not really about the Bible, but about their own interpretation and application of the Bible. You see, as Pharisees, they have the authority to define what proper interpretation and application of Scripture is. And they have made decisions about a matter, and they're testing Jesus not on Scripture, but on their interpretation and application of it. When a husband wishes to divorce his wife or a wife wishes to divorce her husband, the religious authorities, they actually uh, have the power to analyze and assess the motives of the husband or the motives of the wife. The test that they make has to do with the provision of a certificate of divorce. I just think for a moment, if you, uh, when you register your car, uh, you know you have to get an emissions test. Uh, There's a body of legislators somewhere uh, who have decided what exactly passes for proper emissions in your car. They've made a very precise definition about how many hydrocarbons and oxides of nitrogen your car may release into the atmosphere. And if your car passes, what do you get? You get a certificate. And if the religious leaders are actually satisfied by whomever it is requesting the divorce, if they're satisfied, that individual gets a certificate. They decide that. And it's true that the certificate would prove to be pretty helpful. Probably mostly it would be helpful for a woman rather than a man, that a woman would uh, have this certificate of divorce and it would uh, speak towards her virtue or her holiness despite the fact that she's been divorced. Now, a man might have a certificate of divorce uh, as well, but in a patriarchal world, the man could generally get away without the certificate. The woman needed it. And the religious leaders are debating who it is that qualifies for a certificate of divorce and who doesn't. If you were to hold the oral r- law at the time, okay, so go back into the first century uh, and imagine the, the body of knowledge that the Pharisees are working from. Now, it's unwritten mostly at this point. It's not written, It's an oral tradition. But if you could hold all of that, it's been written now, if you could hold all of that oral tradition, one-sixth of all of the oral tradition was about marriage and divorce. It's actually a lot of material. It's, It's not a simple matter. And it's a matter that while it's not addressed a lot in Scripture, it's addressed a lot in the oral tradition of the Jews. And a lot of the rationale for the divorce certificate was pretty settled, but there were some unsettled bits. That's what they're testing Jesus on. Let me tell you what what I mean by that. Uh, This divorce certificate was settled, for instance, for a woman who is seeking to get a certificate of divorce if she was underage at the time of marriage. If she was underage at the time of marriage, she actually can seek to divorce her husband, and she would likely receive a certificate of divorce. That was settled. And certainly if a woman was coerced into marriage, that was a pretty settled issue. If she's coerced, then she would most likely qualify for a certificate of divorce. And there was another issue that was pretty settled as well. If her husband refuses a physical intimacy with her such that he is preventing her from having a baby, that wife also would very likely be able to secure a certificate of divorce. The certificate system, it had these ways in which it would work uh, rather well. The Pharisees had uh, decided this and everyone agreed upon it, but the certificate system pretty much crashed in one particular area, and this is what they're testing Jesus about. What if the husband has no other rationale other than he just wants out of the marriage? What if the husband's like that? He just wants out of the marriage— And you can imagine if you're a religious leader, the pressure you would receive if the husband is a notable member of society, or if the husband is really wealthy and influential. What pressure there would be on the religious authorities to grant this man a divorce, even though he has no real rationale. You can imagine that pressure. Moses, when he talks about divorce, he uses a word uh, in which in Hebrew uh, is the word for indecency. What is indecency? If a man is seeking a divorce and he wants a divorce because his wife is indecent sexually and she commits adultery, that actually was pretty clear. That made sense. But what if a man uh, came to the religious leaders and he said, well, okay, she's been indecent. She hasn't committed adultery, but still indecent. She's not managing our home the way I think it should be managed. She's not parenting the way I think she should parent. and She's not treating me the way I expect her to treat me, and that's indecent to me. Would that man receive a certificate of divorce? And what about the man who says, you know, really there's nothing indecent about her in particular, but I don't, I don't feel as though she is decently fitted to me. I just don't feel like she is the kind of woman that, well, I once considered decent. I just don't feel that way anymore. Would that individual receive a certificate of divorce? Who gets one Who doesn't get one? Let me say real clearly that the religious leaders who test Jesus, they're not really interested in marriage, and they're not really interested in divorce. What they're really interested in is what it looks like to confront the will of God, what it looks like to mold the will of God, what it looks like to get what you feel like you deserve. And they look at Moses' words in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And what they're saying to themselves is, what can, how can I get what I want while still following these words? And most likely they're asking, how can I exercise my authority but still give a powerful man what he's looking for? Divorce, but the kind of divorce in which he feels he's still being holy. Holy. You know, Jesus has had this discussion with Pharisees before. Uh, do you remember that, uh, that Jesus uh, chastised the Pharisees because they were uh, breaking uh, the uh, commandment to honor mom and dad by refusing to financially support mom and dad? Do you, do you remember that discussion? It was in Mark chapter seven. And, and Jesus, he actually chastises them and he says, you know what Isaiah said about you guys is true. This people honors God with their lips while their heart is far from him. And they teach as doctrine, the commandments of men. That's the way the human heart works. I want what I want when I want it. And if I'm a Christian, I want what I want when I want it. But I want to feel good and holy about it as well. And I'll twist God's word. I'll manipulate his will. I'll be right and he'll be wrong. These religious leaders are handing out divorce certificates left and right. 2,000 years after Moses, they've created this perverted system to actually assist hard-hearted married people to get exactly what they want while still feeling very godly. Look down, would you, in this passage at verses uh, 11 and 12. These passages, uh, these two verses are actually uh, fairly debated, but, but look there with me. Jesus uh, goes into a house with his disciples, and his disciples ask some fine-tuning questions. This has happened before. Jesus, he, he uh, teaches them uh, privately after he's taught them publicly. And the disciples, they know that every Jew would take for granted that a certificate of divorce issued by a religious leader was authentic. The disciples would know that. If a certificate of divorce has been issued, it is authentic. The disciples would have assumed that, and so they're asking Jesus about that. And when Jesus says in verses 11 and 12 that a husband who divorces his wife and remarries and a wife who divorces her husband and remarries commits adultery. When Jesus says that, he's not making a universal statement about divorce that is always true. Do you hear me? Verses 11 and 12, when Jesus says that, he is not making a universal statement about divorce that is always true. Look, with Jesus' very own lips, he says in Matthew five verse thirty two and Matthew nineteen nine five 19, 9, that divorce is permissible, certainly not necessary, but it is permissible in cases of sexual immorality of the husband or of the wife. Matthew five thirty two, Matthew nineteen nine. Permissible, but not necessary. And so what Jesus is saying here in verses 11 and 12 is that the divorce certificates that are stamped by those religious leaders are nowhere near as biblical as the majority of Jews would assume. These certificates are a scam, unholy excuses to help a hard-hearted husband, to help a hard-hearted wife get what they want and still feel godly. And in verses 11 and 12, Jesus is saying that remarriage based on certificates issued by these guys, yep, that is adultery. What a joke they are. This is actually a passage in which Jesus speaks very clearly. But let me speak very personally, for just a moment. Divorce is not something that's unusual in our world, is it? It's very common. I know that this is a deeply personal issue for many of you here this morning. As some of you, perhaps I don't know, perhaps many of you have actually experienced divorce in your own lives that you're here this morning with your second spouse, or third spouse, or fourth spouse. I'm, I mean, I don't, I don't know. But I do know that many of you here have experienced divorce and remarriage. I don't know the nature of those divorces. Some perhaps met the qualifications of Jesus in Matthew 5, 32, and 19, 9. And some of those divorces perhaps did not meet those qualifications. I just don't know. But I know that there are many here who are divorced and remarried. And I also know this. I know that for those who have a saving relationship with Jesus, God's forgiveness surpasses our imagination. God's forgiveness surpasses our imagination even as you look back on a divorce that you don't think meets those qualifications of Jesus in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. I know that all of our sins and all of our blasphemies in Christ Jesus are forgiven. Mark 3 28 says that and I know that that's wonderful and you need to know that that's wonderful as well. If you're divorced and you know that that divorce may not have met the requirements of uh, Jesus, how wonderful to belong to a merciful and forgiving God. Now, let me continue in a personal vein, if you'll allow me to. I actually have experienced divorce, but not because I've been divorced. I have endured someone else's divorce, and I'm saying this because I've shared this in the men's breakfast, but I've not shared this with the entire congregation, and perhaps you don't know this about me. I've lived myself through two divorces. My parents divorced when I was in kindergarten, and my father divorced again when I was a teenager. I know what it's like living with step-siblings and half-siblings, and I know divorce. And I know that there are more and more people like me, they know divorce as well. But let me tell you again, I know that in Jesus, every sin and blasphemy is forgiven. I know that. Do you know that? Let's not bring too much about divorce into this passage, because I want you to notice very pointedly what Jesus does in verse 6. You see, Jesus, he doesn't help the religious leaders to derive a better system for allocating certificates of divorce. Jesus doesn't actually answer their question, and for sure he fails their test. The issue isn't what is and what is not a valid divorce. The issue, according to Jesus, is God's will for our lives, and his will must completely surpass our own will for our lives. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. God's will is always right. Your will is always suspect. So, for those of you who are married or remarried, look at what Jesus says about you. Jesus turns to Moses just like the religious leaders do, but he turns to what Moses tells us about God and creating creating us. And notice what Jesus says. He says that God actually created us. No human being created themselves. God did it. Do you hear the will of God? Jesus says that God created us male and female, gendered according to his plan, his design, not our leanings, not our preferences. He gendered us And he designed a plan for our lives that we're not to be alone, that we're not to be isolated from one another. He designed a plan for our lives that allows for a marriage uh, in such a way that it is union between male and female, one gender to another gender. And this union is so intimate, it's so interconnected emotionally and physically, that the union could be called one flesh. This is God's will. God's insistence insistence with this plan is such that while not every person will be married, 1 Corinthians 7, not every person will be married. Those who are married are joined by God and not to be separated. This is God's will. Isn't it beautiful? is step back for a moment. Wow, this passage isn't about divorce. It isn't even about marriage. This passage is about willing submission to God's plan that is beautiful and perfect, designed for for all eternity for us. It's about setting aside our will for God's will. This passage is about the kind of hard-heartedness that we can bring even as Christians, and it's irrational. (laughs) It's about the kind of people like us You and me, who are so thoroughly dependent upon God for our very existence, but will still manage to fight to escape God's control. Illegitimate divorce certified by these religious leaders is a perfect analogy for the nature of our hearts. We're the kind of people who are always trying to slither away from the will of God, Every July, my family, when we were in Alaska, we would uh, dip net for salmon. It's one time a year where residents can just drop a net into the mouth of a river. And when the net, sh- the net shakes, you get to pull that fish in. It's wonderful. It's so much fun. And the fish are large, 20, 25 inches, 6, 7 pounds. And it is so hard, once you have uh, got that salmon in a net, to pull that salmon up to the shore and then extricate that salmon from the net. It is so hard. Six pounds of muscle slithering in your hands, moving wildly, trying to get away from you and away from this net. It is so hard to manipulate those salmon and get them where you want them to be. That's you. And that's me, even in Christ Jesus. We're so convinced that we know what's best for our lives. And when something else happens, we feel as though that Christianity is broken somehow. Something's not quite right. The, the world is undone because my plan, it hasn't come about. And the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, it should be so beautiful to us. We ought to be able to say, my plans have all fallen to pieces. Nothing that I've structured has worked out very well at all. But I know that my God is in control. And I know that his plan for me is a plan for my good and his glory. And what I'm inviting you to do this morning with this passage is to acknowledge that you are like that muscular salmon Shaking, twisting, tearing from the hands of God who is guiding you and caring for you. And that's why I believe that the end of this passage isn't uh, at uh, uh, the, the section about the Pharisees. It actually continues into the section about children. A child is here in this passage not because a child is innocent and virtuous, That's not what Jesus is talking about. There's three things about a child that are very important. All of the disciples would have understood that a child is culturally insignificant. They just don't matter very much until they make it beyond a certain age. A child is culturally insignificant. And a child is also powerless. A child, they just, they can't do anything. They can't offer you anything. They're powerless. You actually have to give everything you have for them. And the third thing is this, is that a child is absolutely dependent. They, they have nothing to do but trust mom and dad to care for them, even if it's a bad mom and a bad dad. They're so utterly dependent. But just think about this. That Jesus is holding up a child because a child is insignificant, powerless, and dependent. And this is a wonderful picture of who we are as Christian people. This is the antidote to our hard-heartedness, being reminded in God's good gospel of who we truly are. We are the kind of people who, even as Christians, we're looking to Christianity for what we can get out of it. We're looking for ways to get what we want and still feel holy. And Jesus says, you were created by God. He's given you life out of the goodness of his grace Not only has God uh, created you and given you life, he has created you for a purpose. He has made you for his own will. And he has saved you as his own, such that you would belong to him, not because of anything that you've done, but because of everything that he's done. He has saved you. You didn't deserve to be created. You don't deserve to live right now. That's really hard to hear, but that's what Jesus is doing when he holds up a child. He's reminding us that yes, we often do try and escape the will of God, we're so hard-hearted. And Jesus holds up a child and he reminds us, I'm like that child, I'm really insignificant. I, I can affect no change in this world. And not only that, Jesus holds up this child to remind me that I'm powerless that I can't save even myself. And Jesus holds up this child and reminds me that I'm utterly dependent. I must trust. I have no choice. For those of you who profess faith in Jesus Christ, this will pinch a little bit to hear that you're insignificant and powerless and dependent. It'll pinch a little, but it pinches so that it would delight you. It's a beautiful reminder. You need God. You need God every moment. You are the kind of person who will slither away from him, try as hard as you can. You're insignificant, powerless, and dependent, but you belong to him. He loves you. And as the world falls to pieces around you, he doesn't leave you. This is true for all of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. You have the freedom of knowing who you truly are, nothing apart from the grace of God. And if you're here this morning and you have not placed your trust in Jesus, did you create yourself? Have you given yourself the life and breath that you experience right now? You are already benefactors of God's grace, but that will come to an end. Judgment will come. You must receive God's grace in Jesus Christ. This is who we are, hard-hearted people, but for the grace of God, we would all endure judgment and condemnation. But in Christ Jesus, in him alone, well, that's where we find who we are. I'll pray for us that we as Christians would grow in our submission to God's will. Would you join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we need these two things. We need to see that we are quick to judge you, that we are quick to find you lacking. We need to see that. But we also need to see, Father, that your will for us is eternal and good and purposeful, that in your knowledge and wisdom, in your significance and power and independence, we are very well cared for. Thank you, Father, for reminding us of these two things this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.